for some new swag, aren't you? Let's get it started. All right. From red to blue. So I don't know. It's been a while since I've shared this story. We, we, uh, we tell stories like this at our starting point class, which is for anyone new wanting, like, give me the big picture and how do I get involved? That's called starting point. But it's been a while since I've shared this from the stage. So in 2004, we were at our old location over off of 83rd and Lamar. We were being led by our founding pastor named Craig McElvain. We uh, nicknamed him Mac. And, and uh, things were just blowing and going. I mean, things were just growing. And we were in this small little elementary school space, and one of our big problems is we didn't have parking. And so we had satellite parking, which was like blocks away, you would have to park, and then we had a little shuttle. We call it the happy fun ride, and you'd get on the shuttle, and you'd, you'd get it there, and, and uh, you know, it was a hassle. It was a problem, and the biggest problem is we didn't have enough spots for people that wanted to come. Well, it was also in 2004 that Mac invited me into his office, told me to close the door, and said, God is calling me to transition out of Heartland, and I want to give you the baton of lead pastor in my stead. Now, I was 32 years of age, less than a year married, had no kids, hadn't been leading at all in this context for very long. The room just started spinning. And I wasn't allowed to tell anyone for a while. There was only one other dude other than Mac and I that knew. His name is Steve Fisher. But other than that, the only person I could tell was my bride, my, my, my less than a year newlywed bride. And so I, I went home. I found her in the backyard. She was watering the flowers. I said, honey, I've got really big news for you, actually for us. And she said, what? And so I said, Mac is leaving Heartland, and he's handing me the baton to become the next lead pastor of Heartland, and I'll never forget the next five seconds of her response. She had the hose in her hand, she had it kind of cocked sideways, and then she looked off in this distant view, and here's what she said. Well, that'll solve the parking problem. From the one you love the most, the words you need the most in that moment. By the way, I have her permission to, to share this story. Um, and, and it took her about like, it took me like three hours to get over that moment. It took her three months. But now it's one of those stories that marks a moment for us as a church. And it marks a moment for us in our marriage. How do we talk to one another in a way that builds us up? And how do we go on that, that journey together? And so I got to just say in the last 15 years of marriage, nothing's been more beautiful than when my wife has chosen to look me in the eyes and just say, that was an awesome sermon. I got to tell you, when my wife tells me that, I don't care what any of you else think. I really don't. It's like that powerful. When she tells me that I'm a great dad, holy cow. You know, when she tells me you're my best friend, wow, words have power. 
In fact, I've just been thinking this last week, where are the moments that I could mark in my life where words have had power either to break something in my heart or to build something? I think about Tom Bronner, one of our associate pastors around here. At that very time in 2004, as we were transitioning and I was becoming lead pastor, you can imagine, it was hard. It was, it was messy and I had these like insecure moments, like am I up for the job? And I'll never forget Tom just looking at me and saying, Dan, I believe that our best years are ahead with you. I remember later, just maybe a year later, and I was with our leadership team, our management team, and we were coming back from a retreat when I got a phone call from my wife saying that she was miscarrying our first child. And there I am in the back seat and the whole thing, and I'm just, I'm, I'm surrounded by my friends and my partners, and yet I feel totally alone. I'll never forget another pastor. His name is Glenn Kaler. He just turned around in his bucket seat, locked eyes with me, and he said, I am so sorry. Just like three or four words, and I'll never forget them. I remember in middle school, being out at PE, sitting on the blacktop, and, and there was this girl across the way, she too, we were all sitting down, and she was sitting by a friend. I don't remember her name, but I remember her words. She said, see that kid over there? He's got red hair. I could never like somebody with red hair. And I, and I was already starting to lose my hair at that age, so I'm kind of going, well, would you go for bald? <laughs> And I remember going to the dermatologist that very year in middle school, and it's like, you go, you know, it's like, I, I need her to, to like give me some sort of cure here. I need an ointment, I need an injection, I don't know what I need, pills or something, but I, I, I need what's happening here. It was a very insecure moment for me, and I had great hope that she was going to offer me hope. And you know what she said? She said, well, I guess you just have the family curse. I remember at the age of about six or seven, as a family, we went to go see a movie, Chariots of Fire, which at the time I hated, and I wanted everyone to know that I hated the movie. And so we got into the car, our, our VW Volkswagen van, and we're driving away, and, and my dad says, well, hey, guys, rate the movie. And from the back seat, I shouted, I give it a zero. And my dad was so fed up with me all night long, he turns around and says, I give you a big zero. And yeah, I remember that, but I don't remember it sting. You know why? Because in the middle of that night, I am in bed crying. My pillow is soaked with tears. And my dad comes into my room, and he caresses my cheek, and he feels my soaked pillow, and he just says, I'm so sorry, my son. I'm so sorry. You have moments like that too, right? You can mark the moments of your life by the words that have either built you up or broken you down. In the Proverbs, which is in the Old Testament, there's this just really clear way that we're offered with our words. The words of the reckless pierce like swords. The words of the reckless pierce like swords. But the, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. We all have that opportunity. We're in this series right now called Walk This Way, in which the Apostle Paul is writing to a group of churches around the area of Ephesus. The, the book is called Ephesians. And he's saying, look, because of what Jesus is doing on the inside of you, 
out from your outside life will be certain ways of living and of loving. You can walk with God in the way of His Holy Spirit, or you can walk apart from Him. And, and in other words, you can walk in love. And we've been looking at all of these kind of above-ground examples of how by God's power in our very lives, we can walk more and more in the way of love that builds relationship versus break it. And here we have the opportunity, Paul says, to use our words, which have so much power to use our words for good. Here's what he writes in Ephesians chapter 4. He says this, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths. Now, what he's saying there is it's almost like this, that the word for come out of, it's just like it spilled out, like you, you got triggered. It was like this unguarded, it was a reckless moment that just kind of poured forth, spewed forth from you. And that word unwholesome means like rotten or decaying or of no value at all. It just kind of came out from you. That's one way to walk with our words. But then he says, but only... What is helpful, that word is agathon, and it actually is the same word we looked at last week when it was translated useful. It means only what is good for the sake of the other. Only what is good for the sake of the other. And what's the sake? What, what's the goal with our words every time we're with somebody? It's for the building others up. And that phrase, that word in the Greek is okodomain, and what it means is to activate someone's potential, to strengthen or empower them, to say, there's something latent in you, and I want to call it out of you. I want to raise it up. I want to see you empowered into your very best, all that God dreamt of and designed for you. And so we use our words for the good of the sake of others, to build them up, and I love this, according to their needs which has this sense of timeliness, like right now, God, this person that I'm sitting with having coffee, this person in, uh, you know, in my cube, this person that I've just encountered on a bus, what a beautiful thing just to ask God, like, what do they need? What do they need right now that might actually benefit them? That word benefit we'll look at later, but it means grace. Might, might just actually give them a sense of of grace, like how do we do that? Why do we do that? Why? Because words have power. Words penetrate into our bloodstream is what they do. I know we talk about, you know, sticks and stones may break our bones. I know we talk about, well, you just gotta have thick skin, but here's the thing about skin. It's an organ, a porous one. And whatever goes on the skin will seep into our body, ultimately into our bloodstream. That's why if you have celiac disease and you're gluten intolerant, this is why for some of you, you can't even use a certain many types of shampoo. Why? Because you'll get gluten through just the pores in your skin by taking a shower. So what a, what a, a metaphor just to say, actually... These words, man, they don't just dissipate. They don't just like go to the air and then they're swept away. No, they land on us and they seep through the pores of our skin and they get right into our bloodstream. And where does that go? Straight to our heart. Words have that power to go right here to shape your identity, to name you, and even... The Bible suggests a sense of almost destiny. Words have that kind of power. That's why naming your children was so important back in the day. I still believe it is. Like the name had this like futuristic sense. It had this, will you rise up into this? 
That's why vows are so important. I was at an awesome wedding last night, and I was just reminded, like when you are, when, you, when, when, when a man and a woman are coming together in matrimony and they're cutting a covenant, they're becoming this beautiful, mysterious one. What do you do in order to join God in what He wants to do in that moment? Like, you, you, like the guy doesn't do 200 push-ups to prove or to make this happen. The gal doesn't bring out her, her checking account to show her net worth. You use your words. You say your vows. And they're so powerful. And they're so meaningful. They have the power to bless these words of ours. That's why you see in the scriptures from the patriarchs all, all the way on from, from Isaac and his two twin sons, Jacob and Esau, you see the power of him giving a blessing to one but not to the other. And the other who doesn't receive it is just weeping out loud saying, Father, Father, me too, can I have one too? Because the blessing isn't just these words that dissipate. It's like this thing that gets carried. Yes, it comes out of your mouth, but it lands on your skin. It goes right down into your heart. And you see Jacob doing the same with his 12 sons. And you see one of his sons, Joseph, doing it with his sons. And you see that the older generation knew that if the younger generation is to step into who God has fully designed them to be, they've got to speak it into existence because God speaks things with words into existence himself. Words have a sense of power to the point where they don't just name you individually, they can create an entire culture. A culture in your home, a culture in your place of work, a culture in a church. Words really, really matter. I was talking to uh, an acquaintance of mine who's a musician, he travels all over, and he played at um, and hung out with a church that's like, has been one of the largest, fastest growing churches in America. And he was telling me what he enjoyed about them and the whole thing. He goes, but man, I had this one issue. It was how they talked about one another. That they would actually say things like, oh man, that guy or that gal, his or her stock is really rising. Now just think about that for a moment. That seems rather innocuous or benign for a second. But what does it, if, if that kind of language seeps into the culture. Your stock's really rising. What does that say about the value of that human being? It's that their worth is based on their performance. Their worth can rise or fall based on their success as a human being. And I, I never forgot that when he shared uh, about this particular church and about that particular culture, and it's actually come to fruition. And now the last 10 plus years and the last year in particular, this church, all those kinds of things, and many more things, of course, but what was underground in a culture that was shaped by words has come above ground. And it's rotten. It's decay. And it's been painful to watch. And my prayer for them is that they're going through a repentance and a renewal that will lead to a flourishing. Words have power. They get into your bloodstream. They go straight to your heart. They name who you are, and they name who we are. And they frame reality. They frame reality. Like, this is why politicians when a circumstance or a situation comes up, they're like, we gotta get out ahead of that. And how do you get out ahead of that? With a framing of words. 
so that people can, can receive what's happening through the lens they want to give you. It's like, just hand you goggles. Like, here's how I want you to view this. That's called by psychologists the primacy effect, which is I'm going to get out in front and I'm going to give you words that will form how you experience somebody. So, for example, if I said to you, hey, I want you to meet my buddy, and he's awesome, and then your experience with him is that he's a jerk, you're like, that's the most awesome or the most jerky awesome person I've ever met. Why? Because I've framed for you that he's awesome, even if that's not your experience, even if that's not true. And then conversely, if I said, man, this guy's a real jerk, but you, you know, I'm just going to introduce him to you, right? And he's awesome. You're like, well, that's the most awesome jerk I've ever met. Do you see how by just placing words frames your reality? And if you want to go really dark for a moment and you look at genocidal history, you look all the way back to the Jews in Exodus 5 with the Pharaoh who was oppressing and abusing them to no end. He used words. He called them lazy. He said, they're lazy. That's why. That's their problem. They are a lazy people. Didn't really know them, right? Just sat up where, you know, in his castle. But, but he called them lazy. And somehow by calling someone that, by giving them a negative primacy, he began to give permission to do the other things. During World War II, during the Holocaust, the Jews were called rats. More recently, the genocide in Rwanda, the Hutus called the Tutsis cockroaches. And we have our own words today, words like thug, words like white trash. And we look at the scriptures and we look at the heart of God and like James who spends a whole chapter, chapter three of his little writing called the book of James, he says, brothers and sisters, this should not be. Look with me here. He says, with the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. So I want to ask you, how do you use your words? And how have words landed with you? It's a two-way street, isn't it? And if we're honest, we both bless and curse out of the same tongue. James is right. We do it. How did, how did Jesus do it? You ever just thought about how did Jesus use words which are so powerful? How did he do it to change the world? Because he took 12 dudes, took a band of women, and, and they were just a ragtag bunch. They were so diverse and socioeconomic and vocational and political. They were all across the map. They were untrained people. And he brought them together. He poured into them for a little over three years. And then he set them free and loose. And it changed the world. It dramatically changed you and me right now in our existence because of how Jesus poured into them with many different things, his gifts, his heart, his time, his talent, all those kinds of things, right? But he used his words. He used his words in a powerful way. What can we learn from Jesus about how to offer one another what is good? How to build them up versus break someone down. How to give something to them that they need right in that sense of time and place. And how do we give them grace? I want to introduce to you a tool. This might be familiar to some of you but a tool that I received from a guy named Mike Breen. It's called the Invitation and Challenge uh, tool that uh, we really see the life of Jesus. Let me explain the tool first, then we'll look at Jesus, then we'll look at you and me. 
that there's two things that Jesus did when he encountered people. And honestly, you look through the Gospels and you see just about um, both of these in play. And when I started this morning, I had like eight examples for you. I have trimmed it down to four, maybe five. We'll, 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 see, we'll see how it goes. But it's really everywhere. You just look at how Jesus did, did this. Invitation is basically saying, I want to invite you to me. Why? Because I love you. I'm for you. I'm with you. And you have dignity as a human being. And, and I, I just, I like it. Would you just come be with me? And by the way, you can't ever lose this. My love for you and my liking for you and my wanting to be with you. That's invitation. Challenge says, look, I see so much more in you. I want to call out that latent potential. And it might stretch you a little bit. But I believe in you so much that I am committed to always telling you the truth and doing it in love. In fact, we look at Jesus as this person he's described as being the fullness of grace. And so you could say invitation is grace. And the invitation, or excuse me, and challenge is truth. And Jesus is both of these things together. I'll look at it in a moment. But really, what we often do is we get one without the other. Let's say, for example, that um, how you grew up. I want you to just think for your family of origin, the culture in which you grew up. If you grew up in a home that all you heard was you were awesome and you could never do wrong, and when you did do wrong, it was never addressed, all you received was invitation, but no real truth or challenge, well, then you probably grew up in a cozy environment, which was like, hey, I'm kind of awesome. I kind of got the thing going on. This is actually a little bit of uh, the quadrant I was raised in, right? And when you live in this cozy environment, you're not really challenged. You're not having the mirror held up to you. And if left for too long, it actually leads to consumerism, where you just kind of think it's about you. That leads to a sense of entitlement. And ultimately, if completely unchecked, it will lead to, think about it, where, where would that go next? exploitation, where if it's all about me, I will do whatever I can to get what I need from you for myself, because I've begun to believe I'm the center of the universe. By the way, does this apply to parenting? Does, does this apply to being a supervisor or a business leader? Does this apply to a relationship that you have? Does this apply to the friendships that you have? This applies to everything, how we use our words. Cozy. If we go over here and it's all challenge and it's never invitation, if it's all truth but never grace, you're probably in an overly stressed environment where you never measure up. You can never arrive. You can never, um, you can never receive that blessing that you've been longing to hear from your mom or from your dad. You, you, you just will keep working, keep working, but there will always be the next thing and it's always held out for you like a carrot and you're in constant stress to try to achieve the love that you've been longing after. And after so much time, when you remain in this quadrant, stress will lead ultimately to shame. Shame says not, you did a bad thing, but you are a bad thing. You see the difference? You begin to address your personhood by what you're not versus by what God says that you are. If you have grown up in an environment where you have neither experienced the invitation or challenge, are you, are you with me, by the way? Are you tracking? Is this making sense so far? Are you seeing your own life and your own home in this context? Yeah, okay, good, 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 very good. Um, 
If you've been neither, neither invited in nor challenged, then you're bored, but worse, abandoned. And so children who grew up in the foster care system would often find themselves saying, I, I am of no value at all because I have not been invited in and I've not been called out to my very best. See how that works? Now, I'm just curious. Can we just do a quick poll of these three categories? This is the Jesus quadrant. We can't put ourselves in here, at least for right now, okay? But how many of you be willing just to raise your hand and say, I was raised in one of these three categories? I'm just going to ask if you want to if you don't want to participate, that's cool. Okay, that's good. Now, let me, let us get more specific. How many of you say you, you were, like me, you were raised in the cozy quadrant? All right. Um, if you would be willing, it's okay if you're not. How many of you would say, this was, I, I was raised in this environment, bored to abandon? Wow. How many of you would say, this was my quadrant? I was raised with never being enough, always chasing after the next thing. Okay. Okay. What's interesting is if you were raised in a stress environment, it's not uncommon for you to have worked your way out of that and say, I never want to live like that, and I'm going to parent different. I'm going to be a different spouse. I'm going to live differently. You're way over here. And to actually tell the truth is really hard for you because it triggers all that you were raised in. Does it make sense? Conversely, if you were like, if you grew up out here in the cozy quadrant and it was like some hippie commune that you were raised in or something, um, you might be over here. Why? Because you lived in a community where no one can tell each other the truth. It was always just, you know, you know love and peace and, and whatever else. But no one addressed actual real issues. And you've, saw, you've seen the destruction of that too. Make sense? Yeah. And if you grew up in this category of being bored to abandoned, it's been my experience, I don't say this from a clinical place, but it's been my experience that the path of least resistance is actually this way, to I will do whatever I can for you to love me. I will have to prove my worth. Because when you've been abandoned for so long, it's so hard to experience just a given love that you don't have to earn. And so your pathway will often be to live here to try to constantly prove your value. And some of that plays out in what's called attachment theory. Jesus masterfully, unpredictably, gave both invitation and challenge in just ways that you just go, like, how did he do that? And I just want to show you a few examples. First, he comes to his disciples, and from the very start, he invites them. He says, come follow me, right? And he's, he's this hotshot kind of rabbi, and that must have been like really cool. Wow, Jesus wants me. Use my name. He showed up at my place of work. This is amazing. And in the very same breath, he said, and I will send you out. I will send you out. Like, this isn't going to be forever. I'm going to pour into you, and that's going to be awesome, but then I'm going to say, tag, you're it, and you've got to go. Do you see how, like, from the very start, there's invitation, and there's a picture of where there will be challenge? No? Uh, and then he says uh, to this, this is, a fa this is a fantastic story. He had sent them out on this little short-term mission trip. 
And, uh, and they're having this blast. There's this exhilarating time. And just like, wow, I, it's like I saw Satan falling like lightning from the sky. You guys have just done awesome. Come away with me, he says. And let's have some quiet and let's get some rest, he says. See, what's that? That's invitation, right? This is beautiful. It's like, sweet, we're going to a day spa. It's going to be amazing. We're going to go to the Biltmore, a five-star resort. This is going to be incredible, right? So they get in the boat. They go across the sea, but everyone knows where they're going. So all the crowds follow them. People come out of the world where there's more people on the other side of the lake than, than what started. And the disciples are going, man, what about our manicure, right? You know, like, I thought we were going for a little R&R. And so they say, under the auspices of caring for other people, they're like, hey, Jesus, there's no quick trip around here. I'm getting worried. It's kind of getting dark. People need to eat. There's no hotels. So send them away so they can go get something to eat. And Jesus says, you feed them. What? This beautiful invitation. And then all of a sudden, this challenge. Sometimes he starts with challenge. Like he's rolling through this town called Jericho. And there's this dude up in the tree. And he's up in the tree because everyone down below, the huge crowd, they hate him. They hate his guts. Why? Because he's betrayed them. He's a tax collector. He has cheated his own people. And he's up in that tree because he wanted to see Jesus, but he knew if he stayed in the crowd, he probably, this is me interjecting this, but he probably would get beat up. In the very least, no one would make room for him because he's the most despised man, it appears, in all of the town of Jericho. So he climbs the tree and Jesus rolls in and everyone's trying to press up to him, but Jesus sees him in the tree and he starts with challenge. He says, Zacchaeus, come down. Now, that might not sound like challenge to you, but I'm telling you, for Zacchaeus, my guess is it was. Why? Because to come down from that tree would mean to come down to the crowd where they might be able to get his hands on them, in the very least, where Jesus would call him to task for all the ways that he's exploited his own people. For Zacchaeus to come down from that tree took tremendous challenge, followed by invitation, for I must have dinner with you. I must stay at your house. One more story. So this woman has been bleeding for 12 years and she can't get a handle of it. She's seen every doctor at every expense and she is an outcast of her community. She's a Jewish person, but she's not allowed to go to synagogue. She's not allowed to be in contact with her people. She's considered unclean. And she hears Jesus coming through, and there's so many crowds pressing in. They're like, everyone's wanting a piece of Jesus, and everyone's touching Jesus. And, and his disciples are playing like bouncers, you know. They're like trying to keep people away. And this woman just says, I wonder if I just reached in and touched the, like the fray edge of his cloak. I just wonder if I could be healed. And so somehow, without getting trampled, she reaches in and grabs the, the, the fray of the cloak. And all of a sudden, Jesus stops and says, who touched me? And the disciples are, what do you mean who touched you? We're all touching you. He goes, no, no, I felt power coming out from me. Now that's a moment of challenge. Because this woman who's an outcast, this woman who's been alone, forgotten, now there's this huge moment where the train is just... And this big spotlight is going to be put on her. Who touched me? Took great courage in that challenging moment. And she stepped into it. And she said, I did. Explains her story. And Jesus follows up with invitation. And he says to her the most important words ever. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Go in peace. 
Do you see this challenging moment? You gotta step up, the spotlight's gonna be on you. And then he finishes with the most important word, which is daughter, which means you belong, which means you can go to the synagogue, which means you're a part of these people. You're invited back in. The beautiful invitation and challenge of Jesus. And when we experience that from him, and when we live that way with others, and when others speak that way to us, there is nothing more empowering, and I'm just gonna say there is nothing more loving than that. You have one without the other. We've said it many times. When you have truth and challenge without grace, it becomes toxic really quickly. When you have grace without truth, you in fact don't have the full power of God to implement life change and systemic change. Both come together. And this is how we're called to walk in the way of love with our words. So I ask you, where are you? We're different sometimes with my family. I'm over here, here with my team. I think they'd say I'm sometimes down here. And so we're different people at different times. But just by default, where do you most fall? And where might God say, here's how I want you to bring what's helpful Here's what I want you, how to build others up according to their needs. You need to move from here to there, ultimately into this category. What might that look for you? If you are in the stress quadrant, the journey from here means you will oftentimes have to go up into the cozy quadrant and it will feel horrible to you, by the way. It will feel like you are lying to somebody. It'll feel like you're pampering some, somebody. Like you're just using kid gloves with them. But I gotta tell you, if this is your default and you wanna get here, it'll mean overemphasizing, in a word, grace. Remember how I said to begin when it says that it might be of benefit? That word in the Greek is charis. It means grace, that it might be a gift. And you might be going, the person didn't deserve it. That's the point. The person didn't earn it. Mm-hmm. Because there's probably someone dying on the vine close to you that needs the powerful words of blessing of a futuristic hope that you have the power to speak into them beyond their current ability, beyond what they've earned. You have that ability. God has given you that influence and that power, and will you use it wisely for healing? There are hearts that continue to have from every artery and vein this toxicity of words that have stuck to them. And you and I have the power to bring grace and healing in that place. And if you're here, is it possible to give invitation but not love? It is. Is it possible to say something nice but to have it not be true and thereby not loving? It is. You might be conflict avoidant. You might just prefer to let it slide away. But Paul says, when he says, don't let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, yes, it means rotten, yes, it means decay, but it can also mean this, of no value. 
of no value. How often do we just say the nice thing to move on and circumvent the real thing that must be addressed if your relationship is going to grow? And that if we truly love somebody, we will find a way in love to call out their very best and to say, I love you so much and I believe in you so much. And by the way, none of us are going to do it well or perfectly, no matter what your category. But some of us need to make what feels like that super awkward. It's like, oh, this is so painful. I feel like I'm hurting their feelings. But it's a journey of saying, I'm going to learn to be more honest and truthful in this relationship. And I may not get it right or perfect, but can we go on this journey together? So I got a text this morning. It's from my wife. She grew up, I think, in a little bit more of this quadrant. I grew up in that one. And I shared with her some disappointing news that I received this morning. She just texted back the most important words. She said, I love you, and you will prevail. And for my bride, that's been a beautiful, conscientious, intentional journey of saying my husband loves encouragement, he loves words. How do I build him up? How do I build them up? When I've come from maybe a culture where we more broke each other down. We all have our stories. We all carry the words in our hearts. And we're all called to call out the very best in others. And where that really starts is not just, okay, I'm going to be intentional. Though, that's my first, how do we do this? you got to be intentional. But more importantly is we each need to allow Jesus, our risen Lord, to bring invitation and challenge to us. By his spirit, just to speak to us where we are. And maybe you're in a, with God, and it might be connected to how you were raised, but you just think God is never pleased with you. And you need to experience his invitation, his grace. You might feel like, you know, you're just cruising, but God might want to go, look, actually, I want to bring you some challenge to convict you, to call you to something higher and better. You might feel like God gave up on you a long time ago when, in fact, he has been following you and searching for you and has great invitation for you. And your challenge might be simply to say yes to that, to come out of your tree, to just slip your hand in through the crowd. And so I've asked Nick if he would just come and revisit that song that we sang, do it again, and just to sing it over us. And what I'd like to ask us to do in this moment is just, would you, would you just take your hands and just place them on your laps as a sign of just saying, I just want to hear you, oh God. Because the more that we're released to all that God would want for you and me and all of his fullness that he would want to bring to each of us, the more that will overflow.
into those in our lives. So we're just going to sit for about three more minutes and hear what God might have to say. And here's the, here's the prayer. I just want you to pray underneath your breath. What word do you have for me, God? What word? And you know it's from him when it comes with a warmth and a weight, not with shame, not with condemnation, not an embarrassment. When it comes with a sense of warmth, even if it's heavy, it'll come with a weight. But it'll have this releasing thing, even if it's conviction. It'll have a sense of, I'm being drawn to you, not pushed away from you. It'll come with a warmth and with a weight. The unique voice of the Father who wants to speak into each of us. The thing he told me today that I just heard on my way in is, you know, it's ironic. I told a story about when I first became lead pastor, my insecurity of leadership. I felt like today he's inviting me to to ask him just to speak into my leadership again. So that's where I am. Where are you? As you say, what do you have to say to me, God? What words do you have? Let's listen and sing.